these were women that wanted a voice and they knew that they couldn't get a voice unless everyone had a voice. But here's the thing. We fail when we silence voices. Hey, sister friend, it's Heather Georgiel, your certified life and NLP practitioner. And I'm Cynthia Fields, your CBF, certified best friend and mother of three. And together, we want to make doing the inner work not not suck by talking about all things womanhood, motherhood, sex, and And everything everything in between. between. Are you ready? Let's talk. This is the Sex and Motherhood Podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to an amazing woman who has influenced my life and the life of so many other women. She is the Oma to my children and like a second mom to my husband and I. Dr. Rayanne Ramsey is a community activist and a champion for underprivileged women and children and for mental health initiatives. She leads the Women's Leadership Conference, which highlights women who have positively transformed families and communities. She has served on several boards and as an academic fellow in the nonprofit sector for I Keep Safe and the Stanford Initiative, the EP3 Foundation. Dr. Ramsey is an expert in curriculum development and implementation and has partnered with numerous nonprofits to develop equity-based, trauma-informed curriculum. Currently, she serves as the Department Chair of History, Humanities, Ethnic Studies, and Philosophy at Mission College in San Jose, California. So please join me in welcoming Rayanne to our show. Hi, I'm Dr. Rayanne Ramsey, and I am a native of California, although I have lived all over the country and out of the country. I'm a single mother. I raised four children on my own. I am an academic. I have a background in two fields, in history and humanities. I am the department chair of history, humanities, ethnic studies, and philosophy at Mission College in the Bay Area. And I have been active on many different boards. I've served on the county board. I've served on boards of directors. Uh, I've worked with a lot of nonprofit groups. And I've tried really honestly to give back to the community um, where I, of course, was fortunate enough to raise my family. Uh, That being said, I think the hardest and best thing I've ever done is being a mom. So that is the thing that resonates with me in terms of my self-identity. Um, most is mother first, academic second. And I'm also an artist. I spent years doing um, competitive dance and choreography and still work with um, a couple of community theater groups. And and that's another really important part of my life. So I think like most of us today, I have a well-rounded life. Thank you so much. We're so excited to have you, Ran. Super excited. Super duper excited. March is Women's History Month or as Heather likes to call it, Women Empowerment Month. And so we couldn't think of anyone better than Rayanne to have because she is such an advocate for women. She has been a single mom and she's raised four amazing children. She also was going to school at the same time as raising her kids. She's such an accomplished woman and we're just so blessed and excited to have her here today. We can get this kicked off with the first question, I guess. So How have women in history shaped your personal life? Okay, so we could just spend the whole hour answering that question or half hour, whatever it is we have for this episode. We could literally talk all day about that. But but it's a good question. It's an important question because as you are aware, more than any other group historically, women have been subjugated or have been disenfranchised. And at the same time, without women, we don't have a species 
We make up 51% of the global population today and the population in the United States is pretty close to that as well. And so the idea that women at times have not been in the rooms where decisions are made, where women were not part of the power structure, where women were not considered are numerous. For as much as women have endured or accomplished, they have also been forgotten and denied access to opportunity. And both sides of that coin definitely creates, particularly in our country, the conditions that women find themselves in today, that we find ourselves in. So uh, on the one hand, for example, where now public education is free and more and more women are not only going to college and finishing college, but for the first time in, in decades, in many programs, there are more women applying than men, which is a pretty radical shift from what it has been. And more important, when we look at those trends, we're seeing more women of color also beginning to participate, which is incredibly important, right? That our sisters, women of color, uh, women who have been disaffected in different ways, that what we hold space for one another and there's room for all of us at the table. So when you ask me like, okay, you know, how have the contributions of women historically led to where we are today? It's like such a broad topic because the truth is, is that there was a mother that raised Elon Musk and there's a mother that raised George Washington and there's a mother that raised Harriet Tubman, hopefully. And there's a mother that raised Sally Ride, for example. Sally Ride, Harry Tubman, and Alice Paul are three of my heroes, of course. So there are women that never had children, like Mother Teresa, who do phenomenally important work. So we get to where we are as a woman because of all of the women who came before us. And let's be clear that women have done great things and women have done terrible things. Women are no different than any other human being in that we are capable of great kindness and compassion, great intellect and achievement, but we are also capable of great selfishness and great evil, if you will. So it's important that we don't pretend that we are a superior part of you know the human species because that's not true. We are just human. And so where we are has everything to do with the women that came before us. And I'll give you an example, Hillary Clinton. I personally do not necessarily agree with Hillary Clinton's politics. However, what cannot be denied is that Hillary Clinton had access to power structures and to opportunities of great influence at a time when most women did not. And she took advantage of those opportunities and she didn't let peer pressure, social norms, and, and the disdain of, let's say, some of her male peers get in the way. No matter if you can't stand Hillary Clinton or if she's your hero, you owe her a debt because she made a pathway into rooms where women were not in rooms, particularly in politics in this country for centuries. And women like her opened those doors first. And because they went there, we can go there and our daughters will more, more easily get there someday. You know, I think it's something like 17% of Congress is made up of women when 51% of the American population is women. So there's still incongruity. There's still disparity. Those, those numbers need to be fixed. But it takes people going into rooms that they didn't have access to, to before, demanding the right to be in the room, and in many cases, enduring great hardship, great personal sacrifice, even some very torturous conditions, if you will, 
at great personal expense or personal loss to get some of those doors opened. And the sad thing is when there's a sort of sociological perception, cultural perception that women don't belong in a particular room, sometimes it's women that try to keep other women out even. So those women, and there are many like Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright who have gone into those rooms before the rest of us, we owe them a debt. We owe them a debt. So there's the long answer. We owe everything we have to the women that went before us. And and when we talk about, for example, the women's rights movement, Women's History Month, you know, a, a lot of really amazing um, things and women that we could celebrate and talk about. But in particular, we have to look at suffrage and the suffrage movement. And from Susan B. Anthony to Ida B. Wells, these are women who, they didn't just stand on a street corner and protest. These are women who will lose relationships and suffer tumultuous engagements with their husbands that will get some of them later, like in Alice Paul's time, will be arrested and tortured and not given representation. And when they have a hunger strike, they will be force fed. Women suffered and died so that all of the women in this country will be allowed to vote and in voting, realize full citizenship, our duty to vote, to go out and use that vote, to educate ourselves and make the effort because we don't have it without great sacrifice. And it wasn't you or me that made that sacrifice. It was all of these women that came before us. And we owe them that. And we owe our daughter who are coming up behind us. We owe them that if we want to hold on to that voice, those opportunities and that space. And so, you know, all of it, all of the things that have happened have gotten us to where we are. And we could tell all kinds of remarkable stories. The big thing is to be grateful for the progress that's been made and to continue to press in for more progress. I love that. It's true. Because the part that really stuck out to me is how women sometimes were really good at judging and comparing and not being compassionate and not cheering on the other woman in the room because we just want to get ahead. From the women in history, we as women are starting to feel more empowered But there's still the same judgment, whether it's mom shaming, body shaming, you know, all of this hate that we still have for one another as women, instead of coming together as like a whole, why do you think that we still aren't learning the lesson of just coming together? I mean, it's like we're all siblings and we don't know how to get along. I like that analogy. That's great, Heather. Here's the thing. I mean, there's no simple answer. But there are layers to the answer. So let me help you. Let me articulate what those layers are. Historically speaking, women were seen as property. And so when you don't have the right to sign a contract, when you don't have the right to get representation, when you don't have the right to your own children, they don't belong to you, they belong to whoever their father was. When you don't even get to be legally in charge of your own paycheck, it gets home, gets sent home to brother, father, grandfather, whoever the patriarch is, right? Uh, women begin to be viewed as commodities as they are viewed as property. In a situation where women are commoditized, then competition between women becomes real because you don't have a voice, you have no rights, and you are competing for some sort of security. And historically, that was a husband. Now, what I will tell you is that in a patriarchal culture and patriarchal in the negative sense, because not all patriarchy is bad. Of course, there are elements of patriarchal behavior that might be good in nurturing. But as patriarchy in a larger culture was something that subjugated women. So in a, in a negative sense, it 
behooves those empowered, in this case, it was mostly men, to continue to perpetuate this idea that women are competing for men's gaze, men's attention. And feminist academics and historians and social justice advocates have written on this extensively in the last 30, 40 years about competing for the male gaze, right? What happens is, and, and we saw this all the way back, even in the, you know, in the earliest historical times as a country, institutionalization of enslaving people, the practice of slavery, is that if you get them to not be able to trust one another, then they are more dependent on you. When you when you make them feel like they have to compete for your attention, they are more dependent on you. And we saw that with women, right? Is that if women are dependent on you, then you have all the power. When you own the money, own the land, are the only one who gets to inherit, et cetera, et cetera. You keep women dependent on you. And so, of course, women have to compete for the male gaze, compete for the male's attention, compete basically for security and safety. You will see the remnants of that sociological dynamic anywhere where there's been extreme patriarchal culture at times. Now, in a capitalist culture, competition is good. You have to remember that when this country was first settled, one of the first groups to get here were the Puritans. The Puritans had a theological belief that God did not like lazy and God only loved work. And that value that work was godly and good and true and pure and anything that wasn't work therefore was not godly, good or to be revered came a sort of pillar of American culture. So in a culture that values always being industrious, always working, what you see is the concept that competition is innately good. Now, what I will suggest to you today is actually taking a break, relaxing, finding peace, doing your yoga, whatever it might be. Not working is not actually lazy and has its own value. And we see this in other cultures, but not in the emerging American culture that found its roots in European culture. Now, I also want to suggest to you that while competition in some ways can be good, we all know that sometimes competition is not good. But if you have this old patriarchal structure historically, and you have this new emerging capitalist society, then those two things sort of fuel an already difficult problem. But when you look at the demographics of like presidential elections, you'll see that women don't vote in blocks in the same way that men do. And it comes out of this like this whole history that is very complex, where there are these layers of things happening that encourage competition and a lack of unity. And then when you add to that, this idea that we are dependent on someone else for safety and security, economic stability, it fuels this idea. Now, the problem with that is that it guarantees a continued lack of power. And when women talk about, we need the empowerment of women, this is what they're talking about. They're not anti-men. They're not saying lock up all the men. They're not. They're saying, look, if I want to be a boxer, I deserve to be in the ring. If I want to be a welder, I deserve to go into an apprenticeship. What they're saying is that we have been locked out of full participation with equal voice and we want full access. We want the choice. If you want to stay at home and be a mom, great. It's not bad or wrong to stay home or want that. What's bad or wrong or problematic because it's, there's no workability for everyone is when you say, oh, because of what you are, who you are, what you look like, you don't get to come into this room. That sort of disenfranchisement is where we start to see problems. So the answer as to why women tend to compete is complicated. And I've left some 
other important elements out, but I think you get the idea and you are right, especially with the emergence of the Me Too movement. We began to see the conversation change and we have a long ways to go, but that is an important conversation because all of those conversations are really about see me, value me. I like that a lot. But you're talking about voting in blocks. And for those of us that are like me, that are like, mm, I, Cynthia gets really mad because I was like, oh, I, I don't vote. And she's like, what? <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry. Um, I, I Now I'm understanding why that's important. But what does it mean women don't vote in blocks? Can you kind of like explain that just a little bit for my brain and maybe any listeners that are like me that don't know what that means? Most Americans don't understand these things. They don't understand how the electoral college works or why it might be important. People just want to throw it out. They're like, hey, let the people decide, right? But there was a reason that our founding fathers thought that was a bad idea too. And fake news and misinformation is a big part of that, right? The public can be fooled and might vote away their freedoms. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating for the electoral college. I'm just saying if you understand why it's there, then you can better decide whether or not we still need it. We are so busy in these capitalist lifestyles with all our social media and TikToking, with ordering all this stuff on Amazon, with redecorating our homes, like where we feel like, hey, I've only had this couch for five years, but I want something new. We're so entrenched and consume, consume, consume that we are not paying attention to what is happening in our schools, in our communities, and in our country. And that's shame on us we could do better. And just know that there are some people out there who might disagree with me. But for example, let's say in the last election, in most urban areas, 60% of women voted for Biden, 40% didn't. Or we could say 30% of Christian women voted for Biden. Or we could say 20% of working women or 15% of single moms or 70% of women who were teachers Voting blocks are different categories of voters who will often tend to vote similarly. And in the past, what we saw is that women voted like their husbands or their fathers. And thankfully, in the last 20, 30 years, we've seen progress moving away from that. But as women have started to vote more independently, what we don't see is that they necessarily come together on the same issues. I want you to ask yourself, what would happen if women got together as a whole voting block and really put pressure on their, their elected delegates so that their congressional representatives in the House and in the Senate, right? And they said, look, we're not going to reelect you unless you make sure I get to choose what happens to my body. Imagine if we afforded women the same faith we do men. We don't tell men that they're going to be castrated if they get a woman pregnant and are unwilling to be a father. We don't tell men that they have to check their sperm count with us once a year so we can register them as possible fathers. Like we don't police a man's body. We just hope that understanding our values and in general, how we value life, that men will think about what they are doing. Now, whether they're successful at that or not, doesn't change that they have the legal right. There is no right that says that a man has to go by a year supply of condoms at the start of every year, right? Do you see what I'm saying? We don't police a man's body. I would hope you would agree that women have the same capacity to decide for themselves. It is not about aborting a child. And I, and I do believe it is a child, but it is about trusting women the way we trust men. If you want to keep it so that women can't have a choice, then what we need to do is revisit the laws around men's bodies. 
it just has to be equitable. That's really what we get down to. So I think, you know, sometimes we forget that, like as women, we're out there, we're just voting and we're not thinking about where's the common cause where we can come together, right? Where's the common cause where we can come together and we can make a difference. What would be valuable as people are beginning to shift as the Me Too movement calls out violence and abuse against women, as people are leaving their political, the the old political, the two political parties, what would be valuable is if we looked around and said, where can we make new coalitions? Where can we create new voting blocks where we as a people can be more clear in what we want from our leaders? Every voice matters. Every vote does count. If women become more committed to every vote, we will begin to see where we are aligned and we will have more power as we vote in those blocks. I believe how we can do better is by teaching our children because Heather and I, we both have very young children and you have older children, your children are grown and you have children who have children. And we just want to know, like, how did you teach your children about all of this? Like, how did you go about teaching them to follow the women who have come before us or the reasons why we vote or the reasons why we need to come together instead of continuing to pull apart? So how did you do that? Okay. So I think one of the things in my home that I did is I tell stories all the time. And that's one of the most powerful things we could do. Stop talking about Captain America and Thor. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love them. But those are not the stories we want to tell. We want to tell stories that demonstrate why we are lucky to have a country that was founded on really virtuous principles. Now, notice I didn't say we have a country that exists on good principles because we we don't. We're human. So we didn't get it right in the beginning and we still don't have it right now. We're striving for true equality. We're striving to preserve liberty and freedom, particularly religious freedom. We are striving always towards more inclusion, towards holding space for everyone, for really valuing all human life, right? And that is the point is that we're trying and we're getting there. And I think that sometimes people feel disheartened that we haven't arrived yet. And what I say to that is look around. The truth is people sometimes say, well, I'm going to go to Canada. I'm going to go to New Zealand. It's like, you haven't been there, have you? Because if you've really lived there and understood the law, like for example, in Canada, there are limits on what free speech is, right? Which is different than here. So we are very, very fortunate because we live in a place where we can teach our children how to change the system and engage the system. And that's essentially what I did is I would tell stories. I told the story of Harriet Tubman and how she was born a slave. I explained what slavery was, why it's a tragic part of our past that we need to not forget. And that not only did she get free, but she would go back more than a dozen times and free more than a hundred people risking her own life so that they could be free, that she was the only woman in the Civil War to actually lead troops into the South so that they could get access to pathways for Black men and women who had escaped and wanted freedom, and they could then press in onto the the Confederate troops. So, I mean, stories of bravery, stories of, of women like Alice Paul, stories of women like Sally Ride, you know, stories of women who came before us. And it can be men. It doesn't have to be women. I'm just using women as an example. But 
of course, one of my favorite is Abraham Lincoln. I, I hate to say that because it sounds cliche, but in the history of the world, no other human being has set free instantly 4 million people or set people free and then lobbied with the help of a team to force through um, their permanent freedom. It's why you can go to the most remote villages in the world and they'll ask about the American warrior who set people free. And they mean Lincoln and they knew nothing about him or his life, but they know the mythology of this man who so valued human life and so valued freedom that in a great war, he did it anyway. Didn't free them with the Emancipation Proclamation. That proclamation was just a wartime measure to disrupt the, the arc of the war and to buy him time to force through an actual constitutional amendment. And it was quite legally brilliant, although some historians might think it was legally questionable in terms of wartime powers, but it doesn't matter. He took a stand. He took a stand for human beings and he took a stand for freedom. These are stories you tell your children. And you say, look, if we don't want that to happen to people, then it's really, really important that we vote. It's really important that we are not afraid of civic participation. We should not be afraid to post on the internet about things that are of concern. And, you know, that's really risky too, especially with all of the sort of mob mentality that that can solicit, where suddenly you're being personally attacked. We have to teach them that they have a voice, that their voice matters. So here's some mom advice for you, okay? I used to say things like when they're melting down because the two-year-old wanted the scissors, but you aren't going to give the two-year-old the scissors. I used to say, you are allowed to have your feelings. You are allowed to be mad and upset. You are allowed to have your feelings. And I want you to go ahead and go in your room and have your feelings until you're done having your feelings because you're not allowed to punish everyone else because of your feelings. I would say things to my kids like, do good, be good. In other words, it isn't enough just to like go in at your friend's house and offer to set the table for dinner. You also want to be a really good person. Like you don't want to be then hanging out with your friend and encouraging them to make crank calls or try drugs or whatever. You, you need to do good in the world and be a good example of the world. Do good, be good. Don't check your brain at the door. In other words, I always encourage them to think for themselves. I feel like a lot of adults today need that lesson, by the way. And by the way, by no means was I a perfect mom at all. Like, but I did my very best. I can say that is that I held space for me. So when they were teenagers and thought I was terrible and awful and mean, I advocated for myself. You can think what you want to think, but you don't get to treat me that way. That's a really important adult skill that adults in the world need. I gave my children language. You can say, for example, I'm not a bad boy. I just made a mistake. I'm not a bad girl. I just made a mistake. I'm not comfortable. Can you please give me space? That was really important. This is how we have successful diplomacy. It's how we broker an armistice or a treaty. It is how we have successful relationships and marriages. Just because you are feeling a certain way does not entitle you to abusing another person physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually, period. Did you just get chills? Like that was so good. <laughs> I want my kids to feel the things that they're feeling because emotions are big. And what I'm gathering from what you're saying is to teach your child to be empowered to use their voice also means that you need to be empowered to use your voice for good. And that doesn't mean having your child feel like they can't express what they're feeling because shame is taught. I feel like I'm doing pretty good. I'm definitely not perfect at all. Um, but like my daughter gets real sassy, like really sassy. And I'm like, can you clean your room? And she's like, but I don't feel like cleaning my room. So I'm not cleaning my room. 
And to me, I'm like, whoa, disrespect alarm. Like, it's not like I asked you to do a hard thing. Here's your options. And you can either clean your room and then go play with your friends, or you cannot clean your room and you can stay in your room for the rest of the day. You pick. Like, there are options. And this is what I'm willing to do. I need you to pick one that is somehow compromised. Sometimes she comes up with a random third one that usually we can work out. But like, I want my kids to feel empowered to use their voice to help themselves feel brave and courageous, but also to use their voice when someone else doesn't feel brave or courageous to do so. I kind of have to work on myself so I can emulate that because kids are sponges and they will take it all in. And it's a little overwhelming as a parent. (laughs) A lot of my parenting style I emulate from Rayanne. <laughs> you're allowed to have these feelings. Like you've heard me say mm-hmm. that. It's okay. You're allowed to have these feelings, but you're not allowed to kick mommy. It's something that I've really, I have to think about it. They see what we do. They see how we react. And then they react that way as well. First of all, in order to be a successful parent, you cannot worry about being their friend. And there are some people who might disagree with that. So let me, let me clarify what that means. It is more important that you keep them safe and you teach them healthy ways of being in the world than it is that they think you're cool and and they think you're hip and they like you, right? That's a hard thing to do sometimes, especially when they become teenagers. And I used to say to my kids, it's okay if you don't like me. I give them permission, but it is not okay to be disrespectful in my home. It is okay for you to be mad at me, but it is not okay for you to throw a tantrum, right? I mean, we're talking about teenagers because let me tell you, teenagers are toddlers just bigger. They go back to throwing tantrums in a very different way. And I think it's really important to remember that. The other thing that came to me when I was listening to both of you that I think is really important as a parent it is very important to apologize. I never hesitated when I felt like I didn't handle something well to say to one of my children, I am so sorry that I got frustrated. I was feeling really frustrated too. And I don't want to feel frustrated with you because I love you and what you say or what you think or how you feel is important to me. And so I want to acknowledge that when I got frustrated, it may not have felt good to you. And I am so sorry about that. I am not sorry that you're in your room and taking the space you need. Those are the consequences for you. And and I think those are important. And the consequences for mommy is that I need to apologize because I got frustrated and I want to do better too. So some parents feel like they can't be wrong because then the kid is going to undermine your authority. But what you're showing to them is, hey, at some point in life, we're all wrong and we get to try again. Okay. One of my most brilliant parenting hacks. Here it is. I thought of it. I remembered it when I said we get to try again. I think Cynthia has seen me do this. If not, Jordan definitely has. When my child would get really, like a kid would get snarky with me. Like, I don't want to do that. I would say, oh, would you like to try that again? I didn't even acknowledge it. It's it's a attention getter for them. Like, look, the way that you came at me might be a problem. What you want, I care about. How you feel, I care about. And you can learn to control you. Because regulation is something as parents that has to be taught. And sometimes I think that this generation that's kind of in their mid-20s right now, early to mid-20s, I don't think that they got it. I don't think that they were taught it often, especially because of the influence of the online atmosphere, right? This idea that you should be allowed to say whatever you want and do whatever you want. And there's a lack of regulation. 
but adults can't be successful in the world today. And we can't cohabitate together successfully if we can't also learn to control ourselves, have some sort of self-discipline and self-regulation. So I would say like if one of my kids was like, well, I want to go, right? I'd say, oh, really? Would you like to try that again? And they would go, yes, yes. Because they recognize immediately that whatever it is that they need, want, or feel, they're not going to get from me what they want if they approach it that way. So I would say, okay, go. And then they would say, like, can I really, I really want to go. It's really important. I'd say, well, okay, why is it important to you? Like, what do you, what do you feel like will happen if you don't go? Like, talk to me about how you're feeling. Like, then we can have a conversation and we can work it out together. But I gave them, I gave them, it was another way to model that it's okay to not get it right. And it's okay to try again. I apologize to my kids a lot. Not because I'm a terrible parent, but because I'm human and I make mistakes because I'm still learning to be a parent. Like my kids are little. I'm trying to model like things that I learned from my parents. And sometimes those weren't great things either. And how those tendencies can sometimes, most of the time, pass down to how you raise your own children and breaking the cycles that you're like, whoa, actually, I remember how that made me feel when my parents did this to me. I need to take responsibility and say, okay, I lost control of my temper. I have found that I'm not being very nice right now. And I'm sorry that I took my anger out on you. I was frustrated and that's not how we respond when we're frustrated. I could have done this or taken some time for myself and that's okay. So I like that that's like something you were already modeling. (laughs) I'm finding it's really not easy to be a parent and um no way and I it's what and I find that I really rely on the village aspect of finding like-minded women who want to evolve and fill in the gaps from what our parents had and continue to teach my children and I would pray that my children are also filling in those gaps for their children for where I lack I think that it's a great way to try to break the cycle of these beliefs that because they're passed down genealogically. And I can think of times like from my past, I work in NLP, so Neuro Linguistic Programming. And so I help clients go back to their past, whether that's like on their timeline or sometimes to a belief that was passed down genealogically and we use their unconscious mind. And, And it's amazing to me that when I've done it, I've gone back like seven generations to a belief where I've been so repressed, but it wasn't my belief. It's just something that's been passed down for generations and generations and generations. I feel like we're on our way to realizing that that is what we're doing and breaking those cycles. And it takes women working together, you know, men that are also on the same page of having that equality. And I am told, Rayanne, the way that you define feminism is different than how a lot of people define feminism. So if I could just know a little bit about that, that would be great. Before I give you a definition of feminism, there's one other little parenting thing I'd like to give you. And in my home, you were allowed to have your feelings, but you're not allowed to take it out on people. Uh, In my home, I was always willing to apologize. And in in my home, you know, empathy was, was taught. And one of the ways that we taught that was through the four-step apology. Now, if you Google four-step apology online, a lot of times what you see is like, I'm sorry, I was wrong because, but that's not the one we used because I didn't like the word wrong. So I'm going to tell you what the four-step apology is. First, you apologize and say exactly what you did. I am sorry for yelling at you, Cynthia. 
Then the second step is, how did you think it made them feel? I'm sure it made you feel sad. So number one is apologize for exactly what you did. Number two is make an empathy statement of how do you think it made them feel? I'm sure it made you feel sad, made you feel angry, made you feel hurt, whatever. Then the third step is a better way to handle that would have been to ask for a break or to ask you if we could talk about it. So that's the third thing. Give an example of a better way to do it. And then the fourth thing is to make a commitment, ask for forgiveness. I'm going to try to do better and to communicate about it more clearly in the future. Will you forgive me? Because what this is, it teaches accountability. Sorry for doing X. It teaches empathy. I'm sure it made you feel sad or frustrated. It teaches them to problem solve. A better way to be to, to, to handle this would have been to ask for a break and then to try to talk to you later. And then it shows them follow through, right? And so those are all really important pieces. So um, I'm going to segue now right into feminism because feminism has been a dirty word in our, in our history. And feminism was a dirty word because men didn't like when they were losing power. And you can argue with me all you want. And that is just the truth. As women became enfranchised to vote, as women became more interested in particular public topics like, you know, prohibition, unfortunately, et cetera, there was this fear in men that if they lost some of their power, what would that mean for them? And, you know, when we know better, we do better. But at the time, they didn't know better. So it was fear-based. So men began to perpetuate this myth that women who were feminists were somehow not really women or not, they must be lesbians, which by the way, it's not bad if you are, but like they, they wanted to make it a dirty word, which is so tragic. So let me go back to the beginning of our history. Our first uh, feminist in this country, when we think about feminists, would have been Anne Hutchinson, who came over with the Puritans and was kicked out because she was really knowledgeable in the scriptures and wanted to teach a Bible study and, and, and teach in a community where only men could interpret the scriptures and only men could teach and so on. And she was cast out. So when you take an American history class, she, we mark her as kind of one of our earliest feminists because she was progressive for her time. But the next, really the group that you think of as our first wave feminists were abolitionist women. Women wanted the right to vote. They wanted full citizenship. And they knew in a society that practiced slavery, they couldn't have that. And we called those women classical feminists, women who wanted equality and freedom for everyone. And those women were largely involved in the abolitionist movement first. And then as we come out of the Civil War and slavery is finally eradicated right before the 20th century in 1865, then we start to see women begin to work on the vote, which will get pushed out to the side after the Civil War. And then, you know, it'll be World War I that helps create the pressure that forces it through finally later. And those women from the beginnings of our country in the late 1600s, all the way up till 1919, 1920, when women finally get the right to vote, that group of women were your classical feminists. And those were women that wanted equality for everyone. Now, could you pick one woman out of the mix and say, well, she fought for suffrage, but you know, she was racist or she was anti-Christian or she was sure because women are not perfect either. But by and large, when you look at the whole block of women, these were women that wanted a voice and they knew that they couldn't get a voice unless everyone had a voice. And so classical feminists are fighting for everyone to have a voice. 
think it's very important to be clear that sometimes in fear, we start to worry about what would happen to us if everyone had a voice, if the LGBTQ plus community had more of a voice, if the opposing political party had more of a voice, if people who were anti-American had more of a voice. But here's the thing. We fail when we silence voices. Because if today you can silence a trans man, then tomorrow you can silence a Mormon. You can silence a interracial or biracial couple. Tomorrow you can silence the rebel university professor. You can silence the rabbi. You can silence a newspaper. You can silence a journalist. You can silence a sexual assault victim. If you really believe in equality for all people, one of the big conversations of politics right now is equity. Like, how do we try to make things more fair? But nothing is fair. Nothing's ever really going to be fair because some of us are born with legs and some are not. Some are born tall and some are short, right? We don't come into the world equitably, but we can be equally valued under the law and in our society. And that is what we're striving for. So classical feminism are feminists like myself, and I am a feminist proudly, and and my children are, and my son is, my sons, because I, of course, adopted a young man later also, because we believe in equality for everyone, that every voice deserves a seat at the table. Now, when I say that, I'm assuming we're all adult voices. I am not saying that someone has the right to come into the room and blow up the table, (laughs) right? It's what we're teaching our children. You have the right to your feelings, your opinion about our history and our problems. And now when you come in the room, be respectful of the room and work with us to do better and hold us accountable if we're not doing well, right? So that's what classical feminism is. And I am a feminist. And if you ask me, I'll tell you I'm a classical feminist. And I hope that clarifies for you what that means. Very much so. Thank you. So being a classical feminist, you have had the opportunity to be an advocate for many women, children, families, like all of this. What initiated that role for your life? Like when did you first get the feeling that you had a voice that could be used for those who didn't? I was really blessed because I grew up in a home with a father who, having fought in Vietnam, really valued our freedom and raised my sister and I both to appreciate the ideas of civil liberties and the right to vote and therefore our civic duty to have an opinion to engage and participate. And it was okay to disagree, politically speaking. I was very lucky. But what really happened, Cynthia, is I went to college. And when I went to university and I really began to see the injustices that are bred in, not only that come out of our history, but are bred into our culture against women and other groups, right? Asian Americans, Black Americans, um, Hispanic Americans, etc. I was shook. I was shocked. I was like, wait, but I thought we were past this. I just thought it was in our history. My naive little Bay Area girl self really didn't understand that, oh, wait, these problems are still around. And what I started to understand that, for example, in the state of California today, if a man rapes his wife, it it didn't used to be counted as rape. Even in California, it is criminal charges, okay? It is criminal charges now. It is um, not just domestic violence. And that law just changed a year ago, but our state legislature attacked an amendment to that law that said, however, 
if you have a wife who's incapacitated and doesn't have a voice, then it's not. I don't know why. I, I don't even want to guess. What I want to say to you is when you go to college or university or you become civically active or you start working for a nonprofit, any of these agencies or institutions whose job it is to be supporting the society at large, you begin to understand more about our history and our current conditions where you can see that in the culture and practices of our society are values and ideas that are damaging to women and other groups. You become upset frustrated and hopefully emboldened to action, right? Emboldened to take action. And that's what happened to me. I just had no idea how truly misogynistic some areas of our country could be. Some elements of the law are, right? And I and, and the idea that California, California, which is considered a crazy liberal radical place where I live, would not be clear on that is insane. The idea that they had to try twice to get that law through, that our state legislature didn't want to pass it the first time, and that when it did get passed, it was only um, with that added exception is crazy. A scientist and friend of mine, Jenny Hutchinson, was a key part of doing that work from getting Judge Persky uh, uh, removed to advocating for that law. And she and I have talked about that many times, about what it says about our state legislature and the men who are serving in it. Right. So what happened for me is I went to university and I went out in the world and I realized that the utopia I thought we had achieved, we have not. So I grew up at home to value certain ideas. I saw the world wasn't really that way. And that was just the beginning of, of that sort of call to action. And what I would say to women and men and to anyone that is listening to your podcast is that the only reason that we don't act is because of fear. and. In my classes, there's a, there's a, a class, uh, a lecture that I give where I talk about what we call is um, uh, institutional discrimination or structural racism. And it's a cycle. You are born as a human being in a society. And from a very early age, you par participate in institutions in that society, like preschool or soccer club or whatever. And then, and so you are born into some sort of home situation where you are taught certain values and ideas that mirror society. Then you begin to go into institutions of society and essentially those values and ideas and cultural norms are strengthened and deepened and supported in those institutions. And then when you come out of those institutions, like you graduate from high school or college or you go into the workforce, right? Now you are a full adult in that society and you are therefore helping to sustain, support and behave inside of those values and ideas. So if you understand that's how the cycle works, and you think about, for example, the civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And you say, well, like, you know, how do we end segregation? How do we how do we attack some of the institutionalization of racism as we've seen it? What did they do? Well, the reason that cycle keeps going is because it takes the individual. Notice I said at the beginning, you are born into a household of some kind. Even if you're an orphan, you're born into an orphanage where you're taught certain values. But it's the individual first. The individual has to be born. And the only place on that cycle where you can make true and effective change is through the individual. You're not going to convince a thousand people at a public elementary school to change all at once. Institutions don't change all at once. It takes time, effort, and energy. But what changes is the individual. Here's the problem. Anywhere you are as the individual on that cycle, if you buck the system, 
if you call out an injustice, there is risk to you. If you lived in the 1950s in the South and you wanted to march to, through Selma with Dr. King, you're going to end up with a burning cross in your front yard, fired from your job. Your car is going to be torched, whatever. If you are at a university in California today and you want to advocate for pro-life choices, you very well might be sitting in front of your dean, right? If you want to take a stand in a particular church that you feel that everyone should be treated equitably in a certain way, there's going to be consequences. And so the truth is the individual will conform, right? And we know from the ASH experiment that outside of the need to survive, which includes procreation, conformity is our strongest primal drive. We need to conform. We survive in groups. We don't survive on our own. We have no wings. We have no teeth, right? We survived in groups. Birds make flocks. People make tribes, right? We survive in groups. So the impulse to conform is huge with us. It's huge. It's primal. And in that cycle of how culture is sustained and therefore ideas of what we call structural racism as an example or any sort of institutional discrimination, it is sustained in that cycle. And the only way to break the cycle is for the individual to use their voice, but it comes at a risk. And the risk might be small, like your coworkers don't talk to you, or the risk might be big. You get kicked out of your church or your company, right? It might be, but the only way that we have change is for the individual to engage. And it has to affect you profoundly enough that you care. And let me tell you, if you guys raise a bunch of self-advocating, respectful, empathetic adults, they will be effective at breaking the cycle that perpetuates any sort of discrimination against any group. And I want to be clear that I am not suggesting that any political party or any particular church or any particular school has problems. I am just giving general examples, historically speaking. That's so powerful. Like, honestly, like every time she talks, I like get the chills. I know. Like, like <laughs> did you feel that? Yeah. <laughs> we are an individual and it's like, it's like the fear of not wanting to be singled out. The fear can eat you alive, but you know, fear is actually opportunity. And if you miss the opportunity, then there's going to be somebody else that's going to do it. And then you're going to think, man, if I would have just been brave enough, this would have happened a lot sooner. And it takes one individual and that individual speaks to another individual. And I can see it like snowballing, which it takes time. I mean, my slogan is always time, space, and grace. Like it's going to take time. We're going to need to create the space for it to be there. And then we need to allow grace for people because we're human. Like we're going to make mistakes still. So to wrap things up, we want to know what are three things or three ways that women today, especially young women or young moms, can do to feel empowered to use their voices? Everybody has their thing. If you care about the environment or the oceans or political corruption or corporate corruption or your local schools or poverty, my thing is human trafficking, okay? There are three, three things. Number one is care. And if you care, it means you're doing the research. It doesn't mean that you're reading an article by someone who had an opinion on, or on, a, on something that happened. It means try to go to the source, try to go read the study, you know, look up the newsreel from what actually happened. Look for independent journalists online. Don't use U.S. news sources. Look at Al Jazeera and other um, international news sources that still really focus on facts. 
you know, educate yourself. Your generation, you are digital experts. When you like a band, when you want to find Taylor Swift tickets, you guys will research the ins and outs of it. You will know exactly that there's going to be a second release for five minutes and three weeks. Everyone set your love. You guys are experts. You know how to do it. So number one is care. Pick your one thing because you can't change everything. And when I say care about it, I mean, find out about it, educate yourself. That's number one. Number two, have conversations. And Heather just alluded to this. Have conversations. Talk to your parents, talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, talk to people at church, talk to people in your political groups, talk to people at school, talk to people in the office, talk about it. Find out what they say. In the beginning, you don't even have to say your opinion. You could say, you know, did you just see there was another school shooting? What do you think about that? What do you think the problem is? Just listen. Just listen. You're going to be surprised that you don't know all the answers. Eventually, you're going to be able to share yours because you listened. Right? So number one is care. And when I say care, I mean educate yourself. Number two is have conversations. And then number three is as those conversations grow, help facilitate the group into action. So let's say there's three or four of you that really agree that I know that you two are both in Utah. And I don't know if you are aware of this, but suicide rates in Utah are higher than almost anywhere else in the country. And it's a great tragedy. It's particularly high among teens. So let's say that you start talking about it and you now have a group of three or four or five friends or parents who are really concerned and want to do something. So then make an appointment with your state legislator. Go and say, hey, what are you doing to help this? Like, we want to know. We are going to hold you accountable. Start facilitating helping your groups into action. Invite a guest speaker to your local school or community center. Like, hey, the four of us were interested. Like, each of us try to bring two friends, and we're going to have Dr. Ramsey come and talk about this. We're going to have, you know, a representative from the governor's office come and talk about it. Because you'd be surprised. Your local universities and schools, your local bodies of legislatures, even things like school boards, they will come talk to you if you invite them to. But that would be my three. You asked for three is one is care enough to educate yourself. Two is have conversations with the people in your life. And three is as those people begin to come groups, help encourage or mobilize those groups into some level of action. You don't have to make your Facebook page or TikTok a one person political campaign show. You don't. And I tell my students that all the time. To change the world, you don't have to cure cancer. You have to ask the right questions. Well, why isn't there funding for that? Why isn't there? Why was there research in prostate cancer, but not ovarian cancer for so long? Why are 90% of pharmaceutical drug trials done on men and not women? Why is it they're allowed to go to market not really knowing if they're going to be effective as a baseline, and generally speaking, when they hit women? Why? Like, why is it that way? Why aren't my representatives asking about that? What, what are the the federal laws that allow that to happen. A lot of times in today's society, because of the digital technium, so to speak, to help facilitate change, you just have to have the conversation and ask the right questions. You don't even have to be the person that comes up with the answer necessarily. So those are those three things. Care enough to educate yourself, talk to your immediate circles about it. And when you have a group that's engaged, encourage participation, you know, encourage mobilization. Um, wow. Yeah. It's true. And you're right. Like we have so much accessibility as our generation. We're the first youth generation to get cell phones, to have smartphones, to, you know, have access to the internet and all of these things. 
where we're so good at it now that we just need to harness that skill and use it for good. Like use our special magic powers Mm -hmm. of knowing how to use the internet to fight for the injustices of the world, fight for the mom who can't speak for herself, fight for the child who has no one else to defend them. It's just a matter of caring. Those three those three things, they're so vital and so important. Because knowledge is not power. It's the execution of that knowledge that's power. And it feels like that's exactly what you're saying with those three things. If you care, educate yourself. And two, like have the conversations. And sometimes that can be overwhelming if you're an introvert. I'm not, I'm an extrovert, but I can have introvert tendencies occasionally, but but sometimes it's like, oh, you have those beliefs of I'm not smart enough. I can't have these conversations. But if you're in a room of people that might be knowledgeable in that, it gains your knowledge. So now you're caring enough that you're educating yourself through those conversations. And then you could be that voice that helps bring things into action. You could just be the facilitator and there's nothing wrong with that. Be the facilitator of how you want your life to be and how you want it to be for the next generation. And that's what I'm gathering from these three steps to really be more empowered in using your voice. Like those are three pretty simple things, really. They really are. And Ran, thank you so much for being thank here. I feel you. like we could talk for hours and oh, hours and hours. Forever. I'm like enthralled. I'm like, man, if this is what her classes are like, I'm oh. missing out. <laughs> yes. Thank you for having me. I would love to come back another time. You both are fabulous. And the conversations you're having are important and are important for women. So thank you for that. You just finished another episode of the Sex and Motherhood podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Are you feeling inspired? Go ahead, rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Make sure to head on over to the show's notes for all the links and info on our amazing guest this week. I want to hear your biggest takeaway. Skip on over to Instagram and leave a comment about your favorite part at sexandmotherhood.podcast. And remember to share with all your friends too. Meet you here next week.